Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Just to give you a sense, we are seeing a bit of those gains being paired with all the uh, three main indexes up about seven-tenths of a percent. Heading into 2020, we see a consensus forming that the fundamental economy uh, will be fine, will be strong, will we'll continue to chug along, and will allow you to clip coupons, perhaps not deliver the same kinds of returns as we saw in 2019. But uh, really, the question is, what could go wrong? And Daniel Martino Booth is joining us now here in our interactive broker studio. She's chief executive officer and chief strategist for Quill Intelligence, LLC, former advisor to the Dallas Federal Reserve, as well as a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Uh, so, Danielle, what are you seeing when it comes to the fundamental economy and signs that the consensus is right, that we're just going to chug along through 2020? Well, I think if you if you study the headlines, everything looks really, really good on the surface. Um, but having worked at the Fed for as long as I did, we pay very close attention. We, we I know Powell pays close attention, he won't say it in public, but he pays close attention to revisions to data. And what we've seen so far through July with the preliminary data is that we've had 15 consecutive months of downward revisions, again, through July of 2019. But every time we get three months of data out, we tend to see another three months of rolling downward revisions. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics will, will tell you that they have a very hard time adjusting at economic inflection points. And that's why at Quill, we've decided to try and look in the weeds at other types of indicators to tell us, hey, if non-farm payrolls is the most lagging of all economic indicators, what can we look at that's real time? All right, so th when we think about the economy, I think most people are just are falling back on the fact that the consumer is strong, they look at the employment numbers. How do you think about the employment numbers at Quill? So we try every week to track two things in the jobless claims data because it's very timely. It comes out on a weekly basis. Um, we follow the number of states in the country uh, that have rising jobless claims. So we're looking at the breadth, um, how far across the nation or not um, jobless claims are rising. And uh, so far, we're seeing about 57 percent. So over 50 percent of the states have rising initial jobless claims. And then we also study very closely continuing claims knowing that just because you apply for unemployment insurance does not mean that you receive it. If you look at not seasonally adjusted continuing jobless claims, you're actually looking at hard weekly data on the number of Americans currently collecting unemployment insurance. We we know Thanksgiving was a very noisy um, contributor to the data, so we've adjusted it on a 53-week year-over-year basis, and what we found was 10 consecutive weeks of rising, continuing jobless claims in this country. That's a red flag to me. All right, so what does that mean? Translate that for 2020. Well, what we're seeing is an increasing trend of what the CFO Duke survey said yesterday, that 58% of CFOs are in a cost-cutting mode. A cost-cutting mode is a polite way of saying we're trimming headcount. It's not, again, something we're seeing in the non-farm payroll unemployment data, but it's definitely something that is being picked up in the weekly data. And actually, uh, to that point, we did get jobless claims today uh, that rose 49,000 to 252,000 versus the estimate of 214,000. Right. So Paul, we are seeing that exactly. Well, yes, but I have a really hard time with these two weeks. I mean, you kind of have to kind of have to marry the right. two of them because Thanksgiving again is so noisy that you, you can't really trust this big number either. All right. So given that we may be seeing maybe from some of your data a little bit slowing on the consumer side with the em employment what do you do on the on your kind of when you think about the credit markets where you're allocating so um you know it 
I, I obviously I live on Twitter, and the um, <laughs> the mantra on Twitter is it's only energy. Uh, so I got so tired of hearing that I, I kind of dug in the weeds. And if you look at the Triple C universe, which has refused to come in, and this has been you know they're like it's just an aberration, it's just energy. So they're. 53% of the, of the triple C universe is trading, so that's over half of the triple C universe is trading at less than 90 cents on the dollar. So of that universe, 29% is energy. What's the other? Seven? Other stuff. Like not retail. energy. <laughs> We've seen a lot of retail. We've seen retail. We've seen some 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 tensions in communications. Um, we've seen some chemical downgrades. So um, cyclical, but also retail as well. But does this mean that we're going to see something broader in 2020, or does this just mean, uh, frankly, that there is discretion in markets and people have been disciplined during this rally? Well, so you would want for investors to be discerning in looking at companies that might, oh, I don't know, go from triple C to A is for Apple, B is for Boise, C is for Cat, D is for default. So you would want for them to be discerning. and I and say but, D is for dog. Okay. But, but at the same time, you can't just look at the data and say it's just an energy thing because it's so much broader than that. That being said, I'm going to talk out of the other side of my mouth. <laughs> The entire Triple C universe, $171 billion worth of debt, is only 15% energy. So we're definitely seeing a you know twice the percentage in terms of deeply distressed paper being in the energy sector. And from everything that we know, from the $11 billion Chevron write-down yeah. yesterday, there's still a lot of, of, of bad things going on in the shale complex. And, you know, Oleg Malentev, my buddy over at Bank of America, Merrill, you know him, he's been in high yield forever. He anticipates that by the end of uh, 2020, given the 7% uh, trailing 12-month uh, default rate in energy, that we will be back up at 2015, 2016, double-digit default rates. Well, broadly defined, are you seeing heightened credit quality issues in the marketplace? If not, do you think we might see them in 2020? I think that uh, I think that after the turn of the year, after after portfolio managers have finished all their window dressing, that we are either going to see double B's uh, double B spreads rise, in other in other words, credit stress spreading, or we're going to see triple C's uh, spreads come down. It's got to be one or the other because we've never had a dislocation of this persistence and and and, and length in time. What about loans? We've seen, uh, for example, one prediction, I believe out of UBS, that uh, leveraged loans will return a negative uh, return next year. They'll decline one to 2%. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, well, yes. Uh, one of my favorite credit rating uh, high yield analysts who will remain unnamed basically said, look, Danielle, if you really want to go to the quick and dirty on this, if you can't access the high yield bond market, go to the leveraged loan market. They'll, they'll loan you money. So everything I'm saying about triple C's, you need to downgrade further if you're talking about the leveraged loan market. And we, and Molly Smith has done a fabu fabulous job reporting on this. We've definitely seen more than just a few instances of leveraged loans blowing up. And when they blow up, because there's no covenants assigned to them, they gap down very quickly. So I think that's going to affect recovery rates um, in the next credit downturn. Danielle DiMartino, Booth, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Danielle is the CEO and Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence uh, and also a former advisor of the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. You can read all of her work and that of all the Bloomberg Opinion on Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the terminal OPIN Go. I will say it, it raises an interesting question because it, it sort of raises a challenge to the consensus heading into 2020. And this was sort of uh, my takeaway mm -hmm. is that we have this belief in stability despite the political risk, despite the fact that we have a number of headwinds to growth. And if that gets upended, sure. that yep. upends 
the vast consensus across <laughs> Wall Street, and there are some warning signs that there is not necessarily the strength to sort of keep chugging through some of the uncertainty that could uh, come up. Yeah, absolutely right. And Danielle, kind of calling out the, the labor market issue, because again, the print that we just had this week on the labor market front was uh, very strong, and the market took that uh, very in, in a bullish uh, light. And certainly the Fed did, uh, saying that the economy is generally in very good shape. This is Bloomberg. I think this is going to be my favorite game to play uh, heading into your end, which is let's name the consensus and then decide whether or not we think it is likely or not. Barry Ritholtz joining us here to play the game with us. We should have like a soundtrack for it. I like it. I like this game. All right. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Also the founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. First consensus, the economic fundamentals will stay strong and it will be a coupon clipping year in 2020. Go. So we have the industrial sector in a recession already. And admittedly, that's a much smaller part of the economy than it used to be. Um, I hate the phrase uncertainty. I think it's a, a completely misused phrase. Go ahead phrase, and use it anyway. But you do have company executives saying, we don't know how the trade and tariff war is going to be resolved. We don't know where our supply chain is going to be hit next. And that causes a slowdown in all sorts of capital investment from, from trucks and rails to new plants and ships. And it's a self-inflicted wound. And as long as this just continues to, as long as Lucy keeps pulling the football away uh, and Charlie Brown keeps being a sucker for it, two feet forward, two feet backwards, we've made no forward progress with that. So, you know, an okay uh, year, maybe two, two and a quarter GP GDP, maybe towards the end of the year, things start to soften. Hard to tell much more than a quarter or two out. So this is, in other words, yes, he agrees with the consensus. <laughs> is, that, is that the consensus? I honestly don't know. Yeah, yeah that's the consensus. I would think so. All right. Another call here. The short-term Fed repo market could, in fact, be a big problem for markets. Yeah, no, that's the silliest thing I hear. Everybody is, is you know, the old line is to a man whose only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To, to the people who missed the financial crisis in 07, 08, 09, and now they have a little PTSD and they're just fearful of the next crisis, they're scared of their own shadow, everything they see is the next boogeyman that's going to cause the next market to get slashed in half. And so everything becomes, we had a liquidity price crisis uh, during the during the 0809 period. So now everything else is going to lead to a liquidity crisis. I, I First of all, I don't imagine the Fed would tolerate more than a little bit of a problem. And you saw their last response when things got gummed up. This is a problem with the plumbing, not a systemic problem. Admittedly, 1987 was a plumbing problem that spun out of the out of control. But this just doesn't look or smell like, you know, a, an 0809 disaster. We should have like a noise for rejected consensus. Right. Rejected. Yeah. All right. There's so a television show that does that already. I don't know yeah. if its ratings are any really good. <laughs> well, I want to get to the next issue, which is developing markets versus developed markets. Uh, developing markets have uh, that people expect them to perform better pretty much across asset classes next year uh, versus developed ones. Go. Well, EM is having a fantastic two-day run. This is the best two-day run we've seen in emerging markets in a long time. The gap on valuations between the U.S. and the rest of the world, the U.S. and, and um, 
EM or we won't even talk about frontier markets is as large as it's ever been. And if you believe in mean reversion, you would say lighten up on the U.S. by emerging market. However, you could have said the same thing every year for the past five years and you would have been wrong. And full disclosure, I've been wrong about this for a couple of years. My only caveat is I've said I will look like an idiot for two or three years and then look like a genius. So now we're in year two of looking like an idiot recommending EM. Who knows how much longer it could go? We're starting to see signs that the rest of the world is catching up to the U.S. Okay, so that's uh, uh, with consensus. I think so. Well, I was early (laughs) and wrong. (laughs) Early, and and, and as all traders know, early equals wrong. Um, But I'm, you know, I'm doubling down. My cognitive dissonance doesn't see anything separate from what I've been seeing. The U.S. is fully valued. I won't even say richly valued. The rest of the world is pretty cheap. If you want to buy value, you look outside of the U.S. If you want to buy momentum, straight to the S&P 500. The Fed's going to do nothing in 2020. So I I don't buy So here's the consensus. The consensus is quantitative tightening and rising interest rates throttled back the economy, and that's what caused the Q4 2018 uh, 20% drop. And I think that's utter nonsense. It is a classic after the fact explanation that nobody said, oh, by the way, we're too tight and we're going to see a big drop beforehand. Other than the president. Um, <laughs> well, he's, he's been saying that since yeah. the day he got sworn in. Um, after saying Janet Yellen should be ashamed of her low rates right. previously. Right. So I don't believe that we're too tight. We are still very close to emergency footing. Um, I'm not a big fan of higher rates, but I do like the idea of the Fed normalizing rates, normalizing their balance sheets. Uh, I've been saying this for, I don't know, seven years now. It's time for the Fed to stop their extraordinary accommodation, which effectively has a result of driving uh, asset prices higher and not a whole lot more. No one is not buying a house, not buying a car, not buying building a plant because rates, Fed fund rates would go up to three or three and a half percent. Barry Ritholtz, thanks so much for joining us and playing our game with us. Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business. That's on Bloomberg Radio. He's also founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Brokers studio. Consensus throwdown. Consensus throwdown. That could be it. We'll we'll take that to Anthony from Sparta, see see what he thinks. Uh, So we'll see. A couple of days ago, the House passed the USMCA bill, uh, Mexico, Canada, the U.S., that trade bill, the new NAFTA, if you will. The question is now, when will the Senate uh, approve it as well? To get some details, we welcome Shannon O'Neill. She's a senior fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. I guess there's some conflicting signals from Senator Mitch McConnell about whether this USMCA bill can get ratified in the Senate this year, or is it going to be pushed into next year? What what are your thoughts? Well, he has said that he wants to wait until after impeachment uh, proceedings go forward, which would be in the new year. And also, he hasn't been personally a big fan of the changes to to NAFTA, the new NAFTA called the USMCA. Um, But whether it it will probably be pushed into next year, but I would highly doubtful that the Republicans would turn down this bill, especially since the Democrats and the Trump administration have finally gotten to a yes. 
Shannon, let's talk about the winners and the losers from this deal. Can you give us a sense of what we've learned so far as people parse through the details? Well, I think there are political winners on both sides. The Trump administration had, he, Trump during his campaign said he was going to renegotiate NAFTA, and lo and behold, he has renegotiated NAFTA. On the same time, the Democrats have wins there. They said that they would fix the bill, that they weren't on board with what had originally been negotiated, and they got particularly Mexico, but also Canada, to move on some things. So they can go back and say they have a win on labor issues and environmental issues and the like. Um, as we look at the U.S. economy, you know, I think American companies in general, there's, there's some wins there. Definitely Internet companies, Amazon.com, there are wins there, both because you'll see more e-commerce go into the other countries. You have the uh, taxes that what they call de minimis, the amount of money you're allowed to send uh, duty-free has increased in both Canada and Mexico. And also the Internet and tech companies fought back some changes that were suggested by Democrats to uh, to um, increase sort of their obligations in terms of responsibility about what goes back and forth across the border. So Internet side uh, are winners. The losers, actually the biggest loser was the pharmaceutical industry. Um, things that they had wanted in USMCA that had been in the first round got stripped out in the second round. So I think they came out the biggest losers this time around and what looks like will pass through the U.S. House and Senate. Shannon, some critics are suggesting that this is you know, much ado about nothing, that the new NAFTA is not a whole lot different from the existing NAFTA. And then all we've done is taken a year here to kind of, you know, banny about and get political and uh, but nothing really's changed. Is that fair, do you think? So there are some updates in this in this version of it. And you know, NAFTA was passed back in 1993. The world was a really different place back then. So this version has uh, different regulations for e-commerce and, and uh, digital flows of information that wasn't even on the horizon really back in the 1990s. So that is new. We see updates in intellectual property rights, some other types of things that most of which were frankly included in the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a big Obama administration initiative with the countries in Asia as well as Latin America. Um, so some of that stuff is new to NAFTA. Uh, some of the things that just came in this latest version, sort of round three, uh, in terms of labor oversight and enforcement and some environmental issues, those are a step up from the first NAFTA. So I think there are changes there. But overall, what all this negotiation has done is kept the agreement between the three countries, the United States, Canada, and Mexico, to continue trading and working with each other. When we heard uh, the press conference announcing this deal and that all parties were going to be signing on to it, uh, there was discussion about some heated phone calls with screaming on both ends of negotiators, particularly with the U.S. and Mexico. I'm wondering, after these negotiations are basically uh, done and dusted, what's the relationship going to be like between the U.S. and Mexico? Well, when I've talked with people who have negotiated trade agreements with all sorts of countries, it's there's always a few moments where heated debate happens. So, so I think the screaming was not totally out of the nor uh, the ordinary when people get to this. But as we look, especially at U.S.-Mexico relations, the trade issues have now been taken off the table, and I think those in Mexico are breathing a huge sigh of relief. Companies that operate on both sides of the border, at least now, they know what the rules are going to be going forward. But we have other issues on the agenda with Mexico and the United States. And the two biggest ones are migration, not just Mexicans coming north, but particularly Central Americans that have been coming through Mexico and coming to the United States seeking asylum from violence and other problems in their countries. And the other issue is security. 
Mexico has seen a huge increase in homicides and other violence, and we've seen a couple high-profile cases involving U.S. citizens where they, they've been murdered. And so there are tensions there between the countries that will be the next big issues on the agenda for the two of them. Shannon, so both uh, the White House and Congress, particularly the Democrats, uh, Democrats in Congress, taking credit for this deal, saying it's a good deal for America. How do the Canadians and Mexicans view it? Do they view it as a good deal for them? You know, a deal is a good deal for them. So I think both countries were playing a bit defense to make sure that NAFTA stayed together, the three countries stayed together in a trading block. There are some things in this that are good for both of those countries, and, and a lot of these updates to the old NAFTA will be good for all three countries and their economies. The Canadians actually, in this latest round, came out ahead. Some of the things that they had not wanted to do, that they'd given as a concession, particularly some of the pharmaceutical issues that got stripped out, the Canadians won on that because they had not wanted it in the first place. But overall, I think this is a small update. It brings some new stuff into the overall mix. Uh, it has some wins and loses in particular sectors that we've talked about. But overall, what it does is keep NAFTA. And for Mexico and Canada, that is what they wanted in the first place. Shannon, just real quick here, I'm wondering what your outlook is just in general on Mexico. I know Mexican assets have had kind of a rocky year uh, so far. What are you looking for in 2020? Well, Mexico has seen a huge decrease in investment, both foreign direct investment, but also domestic investment. Some of that was NAFTA uncertainty, whether or not this deal is going to get passed. But a lot of it comes from the domestic policies of the Lopez Obrador government. So as I look forward, I look to see what he is going to be doing. What is he going to be doing in terms of the energy sector and the contracts that might be with private companies, whether domestic or international? How is he going to treat other sectors? Is there going to be investment in infrastructure that would help the manufacturing sector and the like? Those are the things that, in the end, I think, are going to determine whether Mexico grows faster than it has been or if it continues to fall into recession. Shannon O'Neill, thank you so much for being with us. Shannon O'Neill, Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist uh, joining us uh, by phone. Really interesting to see the shakeout uh, as people try to determine the winners and the losers. Interesting that the pharmaceutical industry is yeah. being pinpointed as the big loser here. Yeah, I like the way uh, Shannon characterizes this deal. Is it's essentially an update of the existing NAFTA deal to you know take into account some of the changes that have occurred in the economy and society since the the early 90s. Yeah, and, and we're hearing that from a number of people. Yep. Just to give you a sense of what's going on in markets, you're actually seeing those gains uh, get mm -hmm. paired quite a bit with the NASDAQ now just up uh, three-tenths of a percent, down from more than a percent earlier in the trading session. I'm Lisa Abramowitz alongside my co-host and colleague Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. A big question mark facing the market has been the housing market, which had been showing signs of softness, seemed to stabilize and even show signs of strength on the lower mortgage uh, rates. But there's a question now uh, with affordability, with the prospects going forward of uncertainty. Doug Duncan joining us right now. He is Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at Fannie Mae, uh, based in Washington, D.C. He trekked up to our interactive broker studios today. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for being here. I want to start with a survey that you recently did of mortgage lenders. What is that telling you right now uh, about how people feel uh, going into 2020? 
Yep, we do the survey on a quarterly basis. It covers the whole spectrum of uh, lenders. What it's saying is that after three quarters of increased, after three quarters of increased profit expectations, those expectations have leveled off, but at a high level. And the reason for that leveling is that there's been a burst of refinancing, which is slowing, but there is continuing to be a pickup on the purchase side. Uh, so on balance, they have stable and uh, strong expectations for profits. Okay, so just uh, a bit ago, uh, the Wall Street Journal was reporting on some trade negotiations and how uh, the U.S. is offering to cut existing uh, tariff rates by up to 50%. Uh, they also are potentially uh, going to cancel the new tariffs that are set to take effect on December 15th. And we saw longer-term Treasury yields go up quite a bit. What's the tipping point for the housing market uh, for rates to go up that would impede the progress? Well, uh, um, the, pay, the, the question is how fast and how far. So they could go up 200 basis points or two percentage points over a three-year period and have relatively slow and little impact. But if they did that in a year, like in 2018, where they rose a full percentage point, first half of 19, slow down in housing. Rates have come back down, which is why you said at the outset things have picked up or stabilized. So household budgets don't adjust. You don't get a pay raise every month. If interest rates go up monthly, you don't get the same adjustment in household income. So there's a lag uh, on which households react on the purchase side in particular. Refinancing is more immediate because it's just a change of coupon from the difference between your existing coupon and the market, and you can act on that quickly. You're not moving your family. So, Doug, one of the aspects of the housing market that uh, I don't fully understand is this concept or this issue of the shortage of affordable housing uh, for for first-time buyers. Is that simply because home builders aren't buying entry-level homes, or what's really driving this? Because it seems like if there's demand from Gen X and the millennials, there should be supply to meet it. Well, the builders are moving in that direction. Over the last couple of years, the average square footage of a new home being constructed has been falling. But it's not the core of builder market. The core of the builder market is the move-up buyer, excuse me, not the entry-level buyer. So they're moving in that direction because there is very strong demand. And in every market, if you look at the low end of the market, the price appreciation there is very strong. This is the millennials doing what they said they were going to do when they had uh, a stable job and income, they're going to buy a house. And since 2015, they're driving it, but they're entry-level borrowers. And typically, the entry-level borrower buys an existing home with the boomers aging in place like they said they were going to, and the Gen Xers tearing the roof off, putting on a second floor because they already own the land. Those two things are keeping supply out from the entry-level borrower. Where is uh, there a risk of oversupply at this point? I mean, one feature of this housing cycle, people come on, they say there hasn't been overbuilding. Well, if you go to certain cities, you see cranes all over the place. And I'm wondering, uh, where have we reached that tipping point in, in the United States? I actually think the, the risk is more in the cost of living in that space and whether companies move because the cost to their workers of attaining housing is higher than their ability to pay wage rates and stay profitable. 
So I think the risk is not overbuilding, it's a shift in demand because of a, a change in where jobs are going. And you're seeing that now. You're seeing some, uh, some companies in high cost markets move jobs, say to Salt Lake City or to Reno or to Phoenix, where housing is much more affordable because they're at the wage rates that they can pay and remain profitable. They simply can't find housing for people. That's why you see people like Google and Facebook and folks like that saying, we're gonna build affordable housing is because it's so expensive they, they at some point they can't afford to pay higher wages to to house people there that's something we're looking at from a mobility perspective because the question is if if you start moving jobs out of a market will prices start to come down because demand for housing will fall right and people start to sell that's more the risk than overbuilding uh, there's not really a place where there's too much inventory at the high end that's that's a different story because High-income households have pretty much pre-positioned themselves where they want to be and taken advantage of low rates and locked in very low rates and are unlikely to move. So that part of the market is softer than you see at the entry level. Doug Duncan, thank you so much. We appreciate your comments. As always on the housing market, Doug Duncan, Senior Vice President, Chief Economist for Fannie Mae, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Lisa, continued strength uh, across the, in the financial markets. Uh, the S&P up over 1% on, the, again, the tweet from President Trump about trade. And then, of course, uh, that report coming out of Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal about tariffs rolling back, not just some of the existing tariffs or some of the newer tariffs holding off on those, but maybe rolling back some of the existing tariffs in the market, taking that as a, a bullish sign is that December 15th uh, deadline for additional tariffs uh, uh, weighs on the market. Yeah, uh, negotiators are, uh, are reportedly offering to cut Chinese tariffs by up to 50% on $360 billion in imports. Uh, that said, the U.S. would reimpose the original tariff level if China failed to carry out pledges. These are some of the offers that are being reported uh, that are part of the discussions that the U.S. and Chinese trade negotiators are having. I'm Lisa Abramowitz alongside Paul Sweeney. This is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.